Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and today you're in for a real treat. We've got five special podcasts coming at you all at once. The following audio was recorded by discipleship.org at Exponential's World Conference in Orlando in March of 2022, where we gave five track sessions at the event. So in the next five episodes, you're going to be hearing from Bobby Harrington of Discipleship.org, Harry Brown from New Generations, Dan Lights with Bonhoeffer Project, Jim Putman from Real Life Ministries, and Paul Hugobar of Renew.org. I want to give you a heads up. Some of this audio has some weird skips here and there, but I'm going to go ahead and share these sessions with you because I believe they'll be helpful for both understanding international disciple-making movements and also for how these principles can apply in your ministry and in your church. All right, everybody, enough of me talking. Let's jump in and hear the episode. This session is uh, entitled A Hybrid Attractional DMM Model Church. How's that for a title? Hybrid Attractional DMM Church Model. and if you're, again, if you're listening to the recording, uh, we want to encourage you to uh, email discipleship.org at info at discipleship.org and ask for the handout on disciple-making movement principles. Uh, if there's anybody here who has not had a chance to give us your email on the clipboard with uh, discipleship.org, uh, we're going to make sure we get that passed around. Uh, we have a lot of great free resources for you, uh, including material on disciple-making movements that you're going to want to access. So as we begin this first, not this first session, this last session, I wanted to uh, give you a sort of an updated commentary on disciple-making movements in North America. It would not be accurate to say that there are no disciple-making movements like we've been describing Uh, in North America, but those that exist so far, according to the folks I've talked to, are more amongst immigrant or refugee populations. The idea of these uh, disciple-making movement movements with uh, Native North Americans really prevailing, that's where there's not a lot of traction so far. So let me just kind of uh, say that for the sake of accuracy. So, what I'd like to talk to you about now is the idea that Paul is leading what what is called an incubator of a handful of churches that are working on a hybrid model. So, when we say hybrid, what we mean by that is we want to start off with the traditional North American church or the attractional church. When we say the attractional church, what we mean is that People are drawn to a church building, typically, or a weekend service, and it's there that the gospel is proclaimed, that the word is preached, that there's praise and worship, there's often programs. Now, when we describe that model, what we're talking about is the native way or the cultural way people have been discipled by our culture to think about church. So typically, when somebody's thinking about uh, getting closer to God, what they're going to want to do is visit a church, or what would be best is if they have a friend in the community who is a trusted person, 
And they, and that trusted person invites somebody to church. And the problem with that model is that it's created what we talked about or what Harry talked about in the last session, which is that we're relying on professionals. We're relying on the professional preacher or people will rely on a priest and that they're the mediator that's going to guide people in terms of how to think. Whereas what we want to do is we want to take people and show them that they're all priests, they're all disciple makers, and we want everybody to see that mission. But is it possible that you can have this sense of this um, movement of people who see that their job is to be disciples who make disciples in their communities, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, they have a discipleship gospel so that they know that obedience is what's required, and yet still be a part of a church that has a weekend gathering. Now, uh, I will tell you that there are churches right now, and in fact, the men who are on this panel with me, we would all say, because uh, other than Harry, we're all senior pastors of churches, that our churches are making disciples. And uh, we work really hard at that. We try to overcome. We have uh, an emphasis on prayer. We have an emphasis on the King Jesus gospel. We have an emphasis that everybody is a disciple and disciple maker. Everybody is a priest. Everybody has this mission to bring in the kingdom of God where they live, work, and play. But is it possible that we can go one step further with some of these dynamics in these revival-based disciple-making movements with an attractional church. So Paul is going to kick us off, kick off this session, and Paul and I are just going to go back and forth, and we want to present to you what that, what we think that model would look like, and then we want Harry, Jim, and Dan to critique it and help us with it. So Paul? Yeah, so as uh, Harry channeled his Enter Simon Sinek. I'm going to do the same and, and try to begin with the why. I, I think that is really important. So, I mean, you may ask the question, why? Um, why should we care about this? Why should we be looking to bring uh, the, some of the principles of, of disciple-making movements into the attractional church? Isn't the way that we're doing church right now just fine? Actually, I think most of us in this room are probably here because we look at the way we're doing church now, or predominantly the way that the American uh, the North American church, what, what we look like and, and the results that we're also seeing. And we would say, no, it's not fine. It's not enough. Um, and, and I think that is what we're saying. It's, it's not enough. Um, I've had, uh, I'm just going to share a personal story. So my first person, my, my, my uh, personal why first is this. Um, I've had several, uh, several times in ministry. So I am, uh, I'm now roughly 21 years into, into ministry, full-time ministry. And I've had uh, probably four times in ministry where I was just about ready to hang it up and walk away. Um, some of you guys know who are pastors, ministry can, can be tough. You can get beat up in ministry. You can get discouraged in ministry, completely disillusioned in ministry. Um, and the last time that I had, uh, had that moment, uh, and I'm not, I'm not alone in this, by the way. You know, maybe some of you have seen the, the Barna study um, that was from last year that talked about uh, in last uh, January, January of 2021, 20, um, 21% of pastors in North America had talked about uh, or, or admitted that they had thought about quitting ministry. So it was, I think, 20, was it 29%? 29%, right? 29% in January 2021. By the end of the year, that number had grown to 38% of all pastors in the United States were ready to give it up 
and walk away from ministry. Yeah, again, so I'm not alone in this, and, and some of you in this room may have experienced something like that. So the last time, uh, several years ago, that, that I had this kind of I'm just ready to walk away moment, um, I, was, I was in prayer with God about this, so not, not walking away from following Jesus faithfully, just maybe done with church ministry. And I'm crying out to God, speaking with him, and, and I'm, I'm voicing my frustration. And here were the way that the words came to me. I said, God, I'm, I'm tired of managing church. I'm sick of it. I'm just tired of managing a church. These guys know what managers do, right? They take what they're given and they keep it going. So here's your system. Here's the system you have. Keep that system going. And as long as you keep the wheels on that system spinning, you're fine. And your elders will pat you on the back. And if you continue to preach decent sermons, church members will tell you like they do, Dan, right? Good, good message, pastor. And, you know, your wife and your family will look neat and tidy and all of that's good. But as I was looking around and I'm seeing so little life change in the people that I'm leading, I've determined one of two things. Either I'm a complete failure in living out the system that I've been given and nobody sees it but me. So either I'm completely screwed up, I'm messed up, or the system is messed up. It's one of those two things, right? And so I told God, I said, I'm I'm tired of managing church. And that was the moment for me where I started to see that there's either got to be another way of being the people of God than the way that we have envisioned in the North American church, or maybe I should just walk away. And so again, as, as God has done all four times that I've had this moment where I was ready to walk away, slowly but surely, God starts to open my eyes to what could be, what, could, what should be. And out of that comes a new vision, comes connections with different people. And it's you know, been such a blessing to be connected with Bobby and others through, uh, through discipleship.org and the Renew Network as well, because that's been part of the process for me in seeing what could be. And that's why I'm here talking to you personally about bringing disciple-making movement principles into the attractional church in North America. Because again, we do have a problem in the way many of us have been doing church. And that's why those of us who are on stage and probably you've all in here, you all in here as well, are trying to shift, turn the dial up on disciple-making and on faithfulness and on obedience and on things like dependence upon the Holy Spirit, depends upon the work of God or on the presence of God for the work of God. So I wrote an article for uh, discipleship.org that uh, was published just this last Saturday. So if you uh, follow discipleship.org and you want to go to blogs, you'll find it's the, it's the top one uh, there right now, the most recent published one. And so you can see where these ideas, these thoughts are fleshed out a little bit more. But in there, I give five reasons why I think, that is the, uh, five reasons why I think um, we need to bring disciple-making principles, disciple-making movement principles into the attractional church in North America. And the first is this, and it connects to my personal why being tired of just managing church. The first is this, and, and um, 
And as I've said this in our church, this has been one of the things I've, some, I've offended people with this one. And so if I offend you, I'm sorry, but sometimes the truth can be a little bit offensive. The North American church has been really good at doing one thing, but not doing another. And it comes down to, it's our plan and not God's plan. Jesus sent us into the world to make disciples. And we've made the mission of the church making more church members. And folks, there's a big difference between a church member and a disciple of Jesus. And if we settle for making church members, we're not living out the mission of Jesus. If we settle for making disciples of Jesus, those disciples will come together and make a church and be members of a church. But if we look at what the end result of disciples coming together is and say, well, that's what we need to shoot for, we've got the wrong target, which is why Jesus didn't say, go into the world and make a bunch of nice church members who are going to try to live clean, live clean, neat, and tidy lives. He said, go into the world and make followers. Go into the world and make people who are changed, as Jim talks about, Matthew 4.19. Go into the world and make more people who will live the mission of Jesus. So again, the way Jim talks about a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. And I think that's a great definition. In fact, we use it at our place. Jim probably owes you some royalties on that one. But I think it's a great definition of what it means to be a disciple, and that's what we're called to make, people who are obedient to the things that we're teaching them. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, uh, if, you've, if you follow the, the disciple-making movements at all, you've seen that there's this conversation about persons of peace often. So find someone who's a person of peace, someone who, will, uh, who wants to take the gospel message and maybe is receptive to the gospel message, the truth about Jesus, the good news about Jesus, who's not only receptive, but then can become maybe a conduit through whom others are now reached as well. So find this person of peace. I believe that actually many of our churches are filled with persons of peace, but not yet disciples of Jesus. I mean, they come every Sunday. Well, according to Barna now, they come 1.6 Sundays per, per month, but they come often enough, right? They come often enough to hear the good news about Jesus. There's, they're, they're receptive to the good news about Jesus. They've just not taken that next step to really truly become disciples of Jesus, so if we're looking for persons of peace and we think that's an important place to start, why not start in a church building that tends to be full of persons of peace every Sunday morning? They're just not yet disciples of Jesus. So they're church members, but that's, again, that's the result that we've gone for. But in that, we have found a lot of persons of peace who work a job, and in working that job, they come in contact with lost people all the time who engage with their neighbors, and engaging with their neighbors, they come in contact with lost people all the time. And so if these persons of peace would become disciples of Jesus, they might reach and change workplaces, communities, neighborhoods. So that's the second reason. The third reason is this. Attractional churches have abundant resources for good works that many times kind of micro-movements don't seem to have. Maybe you read Francis, uh, Francis Chan's uh, letters to the church a number of years ago, and he, he kind of got a little bit frustrated with the system that he was trying to put in place. And he came back and later said that he thought maybe the attractional church or working through the attractional church in America, maybe that could be the answer. He wasn't sure. And I understand that uncertainty sometimes. But the reality is this. I, 
I, I uh, you know, pastor, not a particularly large church. I mean, we're a large church, but anytime there's a need, our church steps up and meets that need financially. Kind of some of the stories that David Young was sharing. I mean, it's amazing. If, there, if, there's a, if there's a hurricane that hits the Gulf Coast, our folks will give abundantly and generously. And we live in a fairly wealthy area, and so we have resources. But many of our attractional churches have an abundance of resources that if they were to become truly invested in disciple-making, imagine what could happen if they channeled those resources, and not just finances, but truly talented people into disciple-making. I think it could change things. So a lot of abundance of resources. Um, the fourth, fourth one is this. So in the, and I'll, I'll confess this, and this fourth and fifth will kind of go together in this. Again, in the times that I've thought about, thought about walking away from the attractional church, again, I wasn't talking about walking away from God, and even in some ways, I wasn't thinking about walking away from ministry. I was just thinking about, I need to do a new thing entirely. I just need to leave these people behind and let them be whatever they're going to be. And then I just need to start searching for a bunch of new people who maybe will get it and will understand it. It's just not going to be these people. Right? I mean, that, that's been my temptation on a number of, on a number of uh, occasions. And here's something that I've been convicted of is that attractional churches are filled with people that God loves deeply. They're filled with people that God loves deeply. So he wants us to love them and not abandon them. And that takes us to the fifth reason. Some of you will, like me, receive maybe a specific call from God to try to do what others will say. And by the way, I think Bobby and I will both give this caveat. There are a lot of folks who say that what we're talking about can't actually be done in the attractional church, that there's probably not any hope for these things being done in North America the way we hope they will be done. I don't buy that. And one of the reasons I don't buy that is because, again, the last time I was on my knees thinking about walking away, God said, these are the people that I'm calling you to. It's kind of what Jim has said several times already. These are the people that I'm calling you to. Because I need some folks who are going to lead in a way that will change things. And even if it doesn't change things, faithfulness to the things of God is never failure. So I will give myself fully to what God is asking of me. Even if I look like a fool to others, I'm not going to abandon the people he's called me to. Even if it doesn't produce quite the results it's producing in other places, I'm not going to abandon what he's called me to. And the truth is, that may be exactly what God is calling some of you to as well. I believe it is, and that's why we're leading this, uh, this incubator as we go, because we believe God is going to build a network of churches committed to bringing disciple-making principles into the North American church movement. So I'm going to turn that over to Bobby at this time. So, um, again, I, I want to some things here, uh, because we do not want to give the impression that there aren't attractional churches that are doing a great job at disciple-making. In fact, again, I'm going to be up here with Jim, who's part of the Relational Discipleship Network with over 100 churches transitioning. Dan, uh, Dan Leeds with uh, the Bonhoeffer Project, helping, uh, again, hundreds of churches make the transition. I can tell you stories of, of Craig Etheridge's group, Disciple First and others, 
who are working on the same things. So I have a very, we have a very specific uh, discussion on the principles of disciple-making movements. And I'm going to identify in just a minute some key principles that are particular that we're particularly looking at. But before I do that, I wanted to share with you the first moves that a church has to make in terms of a leadership, the macro leadership. So in 2013 at Exponential, uh, Jim Putman was invited to describe the shifts uh, that a church has to make to really focus on disciple making. Then I was invited to help write that book with Jim along with Robert Coleman, who had written the book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. And so the book is called Disciple Shifts, uh, Five Shifts to Help Your Church Make Disciples Who Make Disciples. And we can look back nine years now and describe hundreds of churches who have made those shifts effectively. But I'd like to say that when we start this conversation, uh, these shifts have to be sort of at the heart of the leadership operating system of that church, uh, so that if it's uh, a church without these disciple-making movement principles that we're talking about, like Discovery Bible Studies and all these intercessors fasting and prayer and all this emphasis on obedience, uh, we can point to churches like uh, the typical in a disciple-making church like uh, the one that I lead, uh, we have 80% of people in discipling groups, and uh, they're, they're reproducing these discipling groups. Uh, and if you were to look at what we're doing, it would be, it would, you know, really grateful to God for the goodness of what's going on, okay? But we just want to see more of it, and we want to see especially the reaching of more and more lost people. And so that's going to become the, the focus of the conversation by the way, just in terms of resources like Paul's talking about, um, the, 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 the uh, larger attractional church has the ability to help in ways that are often diminished uh, in conversations around disciple-making. I'll give you an example. Shadonka Johnson reached out to me last year in the midst of COVID-19 because many of their leaders were, were dying. And when COVID-19 hit Sierra Leone, it was a real, real crisis situation. I just came before our church, and in two weeks, in over and above offerings, we raised $70,000 that we were able to say, send over to help them. And so I just want to say that the idea that there's only way, one way to make disciples and that the, the large church can't be a part of that is just not right. And uh, so um, now let's get to the specific shifts. I'd like you to, to note these because... In everything Paul and I are going to say, these shifts are, are crucial. And there are leadership shifts that the whole church needs to be aligned around, and the leaders have to model it. We have to be, as, we have to be these things and establish these things amongst our leaders. So it's moving from reaching to making. Instead of uh, focus on reaching and getting decisions, it's, it's reaching people to get disciples. So from converts to a focus on true disciples. So it's going to be the discipleship gospel. It's going to be calling people to salvation and discipleship in their conversion. It's going to be letting everybody know that we're all called to be disciples 
who are engaged in the, the mission of making disciples, and that's the church's core operating system. The second shift is from informing to equipping. Uh, so often today in the attractional church, the ideal is to get some get people to come in and hear this awesome sermon by an awesome communicator that's going to help you to see things and feel good about things. And it can be so uh, effective that it misses the fact that, in fact, we want people to come into the church to get inspired and encouraged, but to focus, the church leadership is to focus on equipping people to be disciples, who make disciples, who serve as priests, who serve as ambassadors of the kingdom wherever they live, work, and play. That they're called to be disciples, who make disciples, and who go into literally every part of the community for that mission. The third shift is to shift from program-based, where we're attracting people to the programs of the church, to where we're drawing them into, they're coming to our gatherings, but instead of keeping them in the church focused on the programs, we are, we're encouraging and sending them into discipling groups where they can all make disciples uh, in, in the church where disciple-making is happening and they're reaching out more to the community. So it's moving from an attractional church with the preacher, the uh, praise and worship, and the programs where we're saying still in our cultural context, people are coming to church, we want to do a good job, but the goal is not to get them to focus at being at the church building or at the church facilities. It's rather to get them into coffee shops and homes and in communities where they're being disciples who are making disciples. That leads to the fourth shift, which is from activity, church activities, keeping everybody so busy with church activities, to getting them involved in relationships. The real goal of being a disciple of Jesus uh, as Jim pointed out earlier, uh, the great commandment, love God and love people. It sums up everything. And if there's one thing that the New Testament emphasizes, and, and this, this is part of my story of being convinced to shift from an attractional church to a disciple-making church, uh, is that the New Testament so emphasizes the ultimate priority of love and so many of our churches are structured where love is not the main thing. Instead, it's, it's attending and listening and consuming when, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul literally puts it this way. He's saying that, that the way we love one another is everything. And in fact, he ends, three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Think of that. Faith is a great thing. Hope is a great thing. But he says the greatest of these is love which I define as cross-shaped actions for the benefit of others. So however we structure church, whatever we do in church, it needs to lead to people loving one another with cross-shaped actions and helping each other to be disciples who live as disciples and make disciples and transform society. So the church leadership has to be convinced of the need to move from activity to relationship and then lastly, from accumulating, where you're counting bodies, bucks, buildings, and baptisms, which is accumulation, 
where you shift from a focus on accumulating those things to deploying people who serve King Jesus as disciples who make disciples who transform families, communities, places of work, and ultimately the world. So in everything we're talking about, we're assuming those shifts. And like I said earlier, there are uh, lots of churches who are committed and living these principles out. Uh, Discipleship Daughter tries to aggregate those, um, but now we're talking about going even one step further with some of these disciple-making movement principles in this kind of church. So Paul, he's going to take the next section. Yeah, thanks, Bobby. So um, what we've touched on right now so far is the why. Bobby's talked a little bit about the how, and now we're going to get a little bit more granular and talk uh, a bit about the what. And just want to remind you, some of you have probably seen the the illustration that uses two different funnels, and so you've got the right side up funnel, and then you've got the inverted funnel. And in the right side up funnel, what you're doing is you're starting with the big group of people. That's many of our attractional churches. And from there, we're trying to funnel people down and hoping that at the end of that, somehow they become disciples of Jesus. And that's that has worked at times. And then you've got the other funnel, which is the inverted funnel, which often, you know, we talk about Jesus way of ministering. He had, you know, Jesus was one at the top end of the, that inverted funnel. Then he engaged, engaged with, you know, three disciples specifically uh, that he was really close and connected with, another 12. Then out of that, you have the 70. Then beyond that, the 120. Then the 500. And then those 500 wouldn't change the world. Um, you know, that's, so what we're talking about is trying to align those two funnels and have those two funnels exist simultaneously within the same environment, within the same group of people. Okay, so you've got the attractional church funnel, and then you've got the disciple-making movement funnel, and we're bringing those things together. Okay, so I'm going to talk about uh, five attractional anchors that remain. Then Bobby's going to talk about, I think, some of the essential disciple-making movement principles. And you've heard about those already a good bit if you've been part of the discussion yesterday and today. Um, Some of the things that we're saying do not go away in the attractional church, or certainly attractional churches who are focused on making disciples to some degree. Uh, First one is this. Uh, the church is known in the community because it serves the community. The way we say that at Grace Chapel, where, uh, where I lead, is this. Um, so here, we've got five things at Grace Chapel, very similar to these five things, that we want to be known in the community as people who love well and can be trusted, both at the organizational and individual level. And I believe that's paramount, incredibly important. Here's why. Uh, a couple of years ago, IVP did a study uh, engaging with a number of people who, uh, who had come to faith who had been skeptical about Christianity before coming to faith. So truly skeptical about Christianity before coming to faith. And you know what their first shift in thinking was? I met a Christian I could trust. Let me let that sit with you just for a second. Because the flip side of that, the implication is that most people who are skeptical about faith in Jesus don't trust us. They don't trust you. They don't trust me. They don't trust our churches. They don't trust us. So how do we start to build bridges toward people that don't believe they can trust us? What well, is both organizationally and at the individual level, your church better be a place that's known in the community for love and good works for the sake of endearing the people of that community to your church but we also better be leading our church members in a way that individually they are building those relational bridges 
so that people who once said, I can't trust any Christian, start to say, maybe there's a Christian I could trust. Big study, that IVP study, if you want to find that for yourself, you can just Google that. I think if you type in something along the lines of uh, five shifts, IVP evangelism study, I think that should come up for you. <clears throat> the second in this is that the church continues to, uh, to have buildings and an established presence within the community. There continues to be a place that people know they can go to gather and come together. This is where we go. This is where we gather. But the reason that we gather is maybe a little bit different than what the reason used to be, where we say, oh, that's the pinnacle of what it means to be a Christian, is you go together, you come together on a Sunday morning, and that's the pinnacle of the Christian existence. We now are saying, no, that's part of the Christian experience. But actually, the pinnacle is living the life that Jesus has called us to live. Okay, so we've got a shift in that as well. The next one is this. Uh, we continue to attract people to weekend gatherings. What that means is it's not just the weekend gathering. We're doing things that call people to that weekend gathering the way that many have done for years. So we're not abandoning that. I'll tell you what, what's really been attractive. Um, I, I engage with a, another organization and do some coaching with churches uh, on this subject. What's really attractive is when I sit down with the church leadership and I tell them, no, we're not throwing out everything you've done. We're just bringing some new things that have been missing, or maybe really we're bringing some old things back into the equation. They don't lose their minds. When I sit down with folks, if I were to sit down with folks and tell them everything you've been doing is garbage, and we're throwing the whole thing out, what will happen is they will lose their minds. And so church leaders, they, they don't lose their minds and they say, okay, if you're going to tell us about these old things that need to look like, that will look like new things, but that we should have been doing the whole time anyway, yeah, we'll listen to that. Again, we don't abandon the attractional church because God loves the attractional church. And let me tell you another thing about the attractional church. There are a lot of people in attractional church that do love God. And we as leaders have messed them up at times by not sharing the whole gospel by not preaching the mission. As Harry talked about one barrier, and you know, we could sum that up to say the first barrier is we've not given them the right expectation for what it means to live and walk the Christian walk, to be disciples of Jesus. All right, the next one is this, and this one is really, really, really important. Again, we've already emphasized this several times. Um, yes, I, I would beat this horse till it is dead. And, and when it's dead, I'll keep kicking it because it is that important. We have got to, we have got to become as people of God dependent upon the presence of God for the work of God. We have to. We have to. There are some strongholds that will not come down without prayer. I'll just tell you a quick story. So we've got some folks uh, in our church who've become really excited about disciple making. Now, the wild thing is they became excited about disciple making when we started talking about this is what we're supposed to be doing. But we weren't bringing some principles of disciple making movements in and along with the conversation of you should be doing, this is the mission of Jesus, let's go out and do it, okay. So we have the obligers, right, that will say, if you tell me this is what I'm supposed to do, I'm gonna go do it. So we've got this one couple in particular, they're, they're in their probably mid-late 60s. Um, they've been just, you know, kind of regular Christian folks for years. Um, just doing the Christian thing, coming to church and feeling like that was, the, that was the right expectation, that's what they should be doing. Now they're deciding we're gonna go and try to disciple our neighbors, we're gonna give this a shot. So they start engaging with all their neighbors and they're building relationships with their neighbors and it's good, but they're not having any breakthrough moments. And then we start talking about the need to pray and fast as we're trying to see things change within the lives of our neighbors. 
Well, they started praying and fasting and their neighbors started coming to them. I mean, it was an incredible shift. And now we've seen their neighbors, yes, still coming to church because that's what we want them to come and and be part of our group. But as they disciple their neighbors, what we're hoping is they're not just going to be inviting them to church and they're not just going to be making disciples. What we're hoping is that they're going to start making disciple makers. And that's a big shift, folks, when we go from saying, well, yes, we should be making disciples of Jesus to saying we need to be making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So we're looking to make disciple makers. And the last one is this. Uh, The church directs people, and Bobby's talked about this, from weekend gatherings into DMM-style groups, again, where things like faithfulness, obedience, and sharing are being reinforced over and over and over again within the context of relationship. Okay, so we we haven't changed the fact that we have small groups where, where I minister, where I lead, but many of our small groups are starting to use either discovery Bible study or a three-thirds method where over and over again, every week as they come together, hey, let's talk about who we shared with this past week. How can we pray for you in a challenge you're having with that person? And so together as a group, they're supporting each other. And that is what disciple making movements are doing and what we're trying to do and align ourselves with, you know, where I minister, where Bobby ministers, these guys as well. Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers. And by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. Really appreciate um, that Paul is describing the transitions that so many churches are going to need to make to be sufficient for the time in which we live. Um, I want to, before I present this picture to you of this hybrid model that we're talking about, give you just a little bit of background on uh, the ways that we understand disciple-making cultures in churches in the United States. So a couple of years ago, just before COVID, Discipleship.org, in partnership with Exponential, uh, Discipleship.org ran lead on this, and we did a national study on the state of disciple-making cultures in churches in the United States. By the way, you can get this uh, study uh, on the website, Discipleship.org. This coming Saturday, which if you're listening to this would be March 12th, by this coming Saturday, the Discipleship.org website is totally being revamped Uh, around just clearly aggregating from every source who is committed to Jesus-style disciple-making great resources. And so it'll be right there on discipleship.org, the summary of the study. And here's the results of the study. Less than 5% 
of churches in the United States have a culture of disciple-making. And that uh, culture is uh, describing churches that would be described as level four, which I'll explain what I mean by level four. The idea of these disciple-making movement cultures that Harry has been talking about, we did not identify in that study, which was pretty extensive and accurate within 3%, we couldn't find in that study true disciple-making movement churches like what Harry described as we began. We did find, though, again, uh, not quite 5% of churches that would be represented by those of us who were up here leading the discussion. Our churches would be disciple-making churches like that. So what, what do I mean by that? Well, I'd like you to think of uh, five levels of disciple-making. And this, the study that you can get, and you can actually assess your church, will help you to see where you're at on these five levels. The first level is declining disciples. This is a church that uh, every year after year, there's less disciples, uh, there's less true discipleship, and the church is dying. It's dying. Typically in North America, it happens more often than not because of progressive liberal theology, but it also could be heresy or it could be leadership failure, things like that. Level two church is a plateauing churches. This year, there's as many disciples as there was the year before. Uh, there, so there's not a, a loss, but there's not a growth. Uh, level three is the quintessential attractional church that is drawing people uh, who, by the preaching, the praise and worship, and the programs, there are more disciples today than there was a year ago, but they're attracting them to buildings uh, where, again, the metrics tend to be bodies, bucks, buildings, and baptisms. Okay? Level four, and again, there's less than 5% of churches in North America at level four, are churches that have made the transition from just the gatherings on Sunday, or in some cases, they don't emphasize the Sunday gathering, and the focus is reproducing disciples. So through coaching, mentoring, and encouragement, these churches are characterized by places where the vast majority of people, typically 80% of people uh, who are involved in the church are involved in discipling relationships. And those groups are reproducing and reaching more people. Okay? The fifth level is what I'm about to describe with these 10 points. It's where the culture of the church is so ingrained with this mission of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, focused on obedience-based disciple-making with an obedience-based gospel that these things are true. So what we're talking about then is transitioning where these character traits are a part of what we typically call an attractional church. Now, before I go through the 10, let's think of the barriers uh, or the strongholds in North America that Harry mentioned earlier. So the first thing is these churches see that the mission of Jesus is the mission of every disciple. Every person sees themselves as a priest, as a um, disciple maker who has a mission from God, and they're involved in expanding the kingdom. Secondly, you'll see this come out strongly, and I would highlight this for you. There is a focus on prayer in these churches, that it is the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed through the prayer of God's people. 
Let me pause for a second and say something. If you've never read Richard Lovelace's book, The Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, I would recommend that you do that. Tim Keller, for example, said it was one of the three most influential books he ever read. Richard Lovelace, who was a seminary professor at Gordon-Conwell, documented how revivals work in history. And by the way, the precursor of revival, sometimes it takes 30 or 40 years, but the precursor of revival is the fasting and prayer focus Harry has been talking about. Thirdly, in what I'm about to go through with you, you'll notice that there's an emphasis on obedience, that it's a culture of obedience. Uh, And then lastly, that there is leadership. The leadership in the church is focused on Ephesians 4 of equipping people to do the work of ministry. All right? So here's the 10 character traits which we would strive for. First off, the mission is clear all the time. Reaching lost people, being disciples, and making disciples. If I can just tell you something that I have learned uh, with over 15 years of looking very carefully at disciple-making in North America, there is too much disciple-making that's all about spiritual formation, it's about being in groups, and it's about maturing in Christ, but there's a diminishing concern in disciple-making churches about lost people. And one of the things that disciple-making movement churches are focused on very much is that people are lost without Jesus, and we've got to be disciples who reach them. What we are advocating in this hybrid model is that that passion for lost people becomes a part of the DNA of an attractional church. Secondly, radical dependence on the Holy Spirit through in-depth fasting and prayer that empowers the movement. In these churches, we're advocating, similar to what uh, Harry described, A couple of times a year, there's a church-wide emphasis on fasting and praying for lost people. There's weekly habits of fasting and prayer, and there's intercessors in churches whose ministry is just as important as any other ministry in the church because it's so important to call on God to break down the strongholds. Disciple-making is the culture. And if you've never spent much time looking at this, I would encourage you to look at how do you establish a culture? How do you establish a disciple-making culture? Well, in these churches, it's the underlying cultural identity of the church reflecting the lived reality of the church's values, actions, and words. Spent a lot of time talking with uh, Shidonke, for example, about values and about creating a culture. And Shidonke challenges our North American assumption. Here's our North American assumption that we can describe with word pictures and with stories and with good language, how to change a culture. Shidonke says that's not going to happen that way. You have to call people to obedience. And the obedience, the actions, are more important if you had to pick than the narrative and discussion. So let me give you an example. Right now on Monday nights, my wife and I are leading a three-thirds group, and we invited into our three-thirds group a group of people who do not reach lost people. But what's happened is because they committed to the group and because they committed to the principles, now everybody's starting to act on uh, what they said they would do because of the accountability of the group, where every week we're bringing up, who did you share the hope of Jesus with? And so it's the actions of getting people to take actions that's super important in establishing a culture. Number four, disciple-making is the filter. 
This means every decision made and every dollar spent passes through the filter. How does this help us reach and make disciples? Number five, the leadership and staff make and coach disciple makers. So when, when I first was making the shift in my leadership uh, in our church, we, we worked hard to persuade everybody that the core mission is uh, uh, disciple making. And then I was coaching other churches in uh, how you make the shift. And one day it hit me. I'm getting everybody to make disciples who's on staff at the church and who's in eldership and leadership at the church, but we're actually not going to see a, a culture shift because the job of, st- if you're privileged to be on staff according and leadership in a church, let me just describe it biblically. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul describes the, the leadership roles in the church, including elders, uh, I'm sorry, evangelists and teachers and pastors. And he says this, what's their job? Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Their job is to equip the body so that the body does the work of ministry. And I realized, whoa, 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 paradigm shift. If you're privileged to be in leadership, your job is not to make disciples, although you will be doing that. Your job is to make disciple makers because the more disciple makers, the more the, the ministry becomes multiplied to more and more people. So it's not just enough to say, yeah, uh, I'm on staff and I lead a group. I'm making disciples. You want to do that. But the scorecard should be how many disciple makers have you raised up if you're privileged to be in leadership or on staff at a church? Next metric, uh, number six, disciple making expectations are high. There is a joyful expectation that every member is committed to being a disciple and becoming a disciple maker with 20 to 25% of adult lay leaders personally engaged in making disciples. Number seven is a big deal. Confidence in Scripture as the curriculum, as the basis for everything that a church thinks, says, and does is super important. We live in a time, please please hear me on this, we live in a time where the authority of God's Word in multiple ways in a post-truth culture has been undermined. Where people think they can't know what the Bible says. And there are a lot of people who are saying in the midst of that culture, let's just trust the traditions and the liturgy of historic churches. And a lot of people are attracted to that because it seems like all these Christians out here, they have confusing and diverse messages. And here's this, this thing. They think it's been around from the beginning. Unfortunately, these, these, the traditional churches that emphasize priests and liturgy and sacraments, and I'm not trying to put anything down there per se, but I am trying to call out something. When you trust in priests, liturgy, traditions and institutions, it breeds dependence on priests, liturgy, and institutions rather than on Jesus and Scripture and being disciples who make disciples. And if we don't get people into the Bible where Scripture is the curriculum, we are setting people up in our culture to gravitate to other anchors. So they need to know, 
And the only way to really know that Scripture can be trusted and changes lives, if you get people in Scripture. And so there's, it's so important. Uh, Dan is going to reiterate this in terms of preaching on Sunday mornings that we get people into Scripture. But I'm just saying that in our groups, let's not get people into all these books about Scripture. Let's get them into Scripture. Because Scripture is like a lion. It doesn't have to be defended. It defends itself when people are engaged in it. It's changed my life. I was changed not by what people said, but what God's Word says. And uh, we have got to get people in Scripture. So it is the curriculum. Uh, Number eight, intentionality prevails in a simple, effective, and reproducible system. And we're recommending the uh, three-thirds model or some version of Discovery Bible Study. And the idea is, it's what Harry said yesterday, you want to give people who are in relationship with each other a method of being in Scripture that is simple, it's effective, and it's reproducible. Once they've been through it, they can do it with other people who can do it with other people. And the next thing you know, people who you started something and they don't even know who you are, but they're using the simple, effective, reproducible method of being in Scripture with the Word of God, the people of God, and the mission of Jesus, and lives are being transformed. Stories of disciple-making are prevailing throughout the church. And number 10, disciples who make disciples who make disciples who plant churches. The disciple-making activity of the church results in planting of new churches every year or two. Hi, it's Jason Henderson here as a sponsor from Renew.org. I wanted to invite you to not only attend Discipleship.org's National Disciple Making Forum, but come one day early for the Renew.org Network National Gathering. It's October 4th from 1230 to 830 p.m. So the afternoon and evening, you can travel early that day. You'll get to hear from Paul Hugabart, Jim Putman, Shadonke Johnson, and other well-known disciple makers. They'll speak on our theme, Real Life Theology Conversations. That's the theology we need for real life and the relationships and conversations, the hard conversations that it takes in today's cultural reality to make disciples. There's special pricing available. You're going to want the best price to come to both Discipleship.org's National Disciple Making Forum as well as Renew.org's National Gathering. Go to Renew.org forward slash events for that combo ticket. That's the best price to both events, the combo ticket. Again, that's R-E-N-E-W dot O-R-G forward slash events. Renew.org forward slash events. We'll see you there. All right, man, let's join the conversation. Awesome. Well, I'm going to be moderating this one, asking you guys some questions. Uh, Obviously, as I've listened to both uh, Bobby and Paul, there's a lot to digest. Anybody uh, full, right? Anybody like, okay, uh, where do I start? Um, one of the things that I want to touch on real quick, because I think it's, it's vital to the discussion, because this is one of the things that, that I've seen. I've, you know, like I said, I can sit out here, I can listen. And as I'm listening to engage and, and take this back to where I'm going, I can hear things. And then I'll talk to one of my friends and they heard something different. And, and it's not that what was spoken of wasn't clear, but 
sometimes we have different definitions in our mind of what's being said, mm -hmm. the language problem, the language barrier. So when we're talking about, and we've done it for the last you know, two days, basically, what do we mean when we're talking about a church? What is a church, right? Again, because we can hear church, right? Church planting, church, church, church. But how do we define church? How does scripture define church? What, what is the language that we're using and how is that important? So uh, just a little bit of background, Dan. I wanted to share the definition that a group of us worked on, including Jim Putman, uh, Dan Spader, Bill Hull, Roy Moran, who's at the back. Uh, we came together in Phoenix and we spent, for the most part of a day, hammering out a definition on what a church is. And uh, I'm going to hopefully be able to pull this up from uh, discipleship.org. It's one of our definitions right. listed there under point nine. And you would think that I would have mastered the definition where I could just spout it off right now. But I, I want to, uh, I'll just get, yeah. give a rough definition because th this is so important. Of course, the word ekklesia in Greek connotated a, a gathering it, it, in its original context. It was at least 10 people. Just like in a synagogue, you had to have, uh, before it was a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 men is the Jewish background to it. So the, the uh, assembly, which can be translated gathering, was a group of people called out who had come together, uh, who saw themselves as having an identity in it. Uh, they would uh, be given over to surrendered obedience uh, to the teachings of Jesus and seeking to come under God-ordained leadership. When I say God-ordained, I believe that Scripture gives us a norm of what leadership should look like. And unless we are moving toward uh, that leadership, we would have to see that this is not truly a church yet. It's a church on its way to becoming a church. And so for, for the basic uh, definition that we would use, the idea is that you're having at least 10 people coming together around the Word of God uh, aspiring to follow the teachings of Jesus and come under God-ordained leadership as described, especially in First uh, Timothy and Titus and other places in the New Testament. And Jim, you may remember more of the definition from that conversation. Oh, wait, the website finally works. So Jim, jump in, and then I'm going to read to you the definition that we started with that day. And Harry, you had yours memorized. Well, let me say this. this whole, the whole discussion of minimum ecclesiology drives me absolutely crazy. Tell, tell everybody what they, like the background on that. That's important. What's the least amount we can do and call ourselves a church? That drives me, I mean, just that question to me is, I don't like it. Um, when Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell were not, that would, will not prevail against it. He didn't mean go, you know, go church, do church any way you wanted. When he said, go make disciples, the early church followed that model. And you can see what Jesus' idea of a church is right there in Acts 2. 3,000 people were baptized on that day. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings, which means that the Word of God, as, as the, the Scriptures, uh, New Testament version, all Scripture is God-breathed. Jesus said, I will teach you all things. I will remind you of everything that I've said to you. The New Testament writings, the Old Testament writings, 
they were devoted to that. But they, that also means they were devoted to the leadership that Jesus had set aside for them. Uh, Paul later went and said to Titus, appoint elders in every town. Right? There was a le- there's a leadership component. One of the things that drives me crazy right now is, especially in America, it's very attractive in America. You, you get to go get your own certificate of ordination. You get to go start your own little church. You don't have to be a part of, uh, you know, it's a little life group that goes off and decides they're going to watch whichever pastor online now and have a little group and we're going to be a church. There's no ordained authority putting your hands on somebody that's been accredited and vetted uh, who's met the qualifications. Just I decided I don't want to follow anybody else, so I'm going to start my own thing. And it's just, it, it makes sense because Americans are rebellious and they don't like to be told what to do. And so... Um, the church, they gathered together. I, I, I always, when you guys were talking, I, I don't really understand what you mean by attractional model. I don't even know what that means. Uh, do you mean yes, a big, you do. do you, well, I, and I think you're crazy, okay? Um, because what you mean by attractional, when you, when you use big and attractional in the same word, you're implying that a big church is attractional. And that's their motivation. I think you, you get people who are gifted and they use their gifts well and they, they get good at doing something because they've gotten a chance to play, get good at something. That doesn't mean they're trying to be attractional so much as it means they've gotten good at doing something and, and it's organized and it's done well. Um, I don't really understand what that means. Okay, then let me, let me uh, uh, jump in here. The average person in North America thinks the goal is more people up and to the right. We want to attract more people this Sunday than we had last Sunday, and we want more people to join our programs. Our, so you're talking about preaching. motives. Uh, uh, I'm talking about actually not just motives, but people believe that's the purpose, that the focus should be drawing more and okay. more people so, just again, though, for that so purpose. So just because a church is big... And it does attract people, right? Like you go. Our our point is that that can still be good and right, right? And I know that that's if 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 we were to get to your motives or to get to Dan's motives, uh, Paul's, you know, mine. Of course, we we want more people to come. We want them to come. I don't want Grandma playing the guitar up there, singing off tune. I don't really. That's not her gift. So you don't want an unattractive, unattractive service. Yeah, somehow being unattractive is somehow the thing. I, I just don't understand that language. But my point being is, they they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to prayer. Right? They pray together. They were devoted to fellowship. And fellowship is this idea that they did life. They met together in the temple courts, large group, and from house to house daily. It, church isn't something you go to. It's a community you're involved in. And what we try to do in America is we go, well, since we only got an hour and a half, we don't want them to be there on Sunday morning because, you know, that's just talking at people and singing. So let's just move to a small group. There's no such thing as a church in an hour and a half. Doesn't matter whether it's small group or big group. That's not the church. They were, they, they had things that the big church could do and they did it together in the temple courts. And people notice, look at that group over there. And they, you know, and, and the Lord added to their number daily. There's, there's nothing super spiritual about small, right? It, it, it's, it's, if you do the right things and you're loving God and loving others well, people are drawn to it, which leads to an organizational problem. With more people comes more problems. The Bible's got, God's idea of a church is organized 
administration, leadership. Right. And we try to super, we try to make it spiritual that it's small. Or we try to make it spiritual that it's big. Big or small is irrelevant. Do what God tells you to do, and it's going to lead to, to good things and problems, too. People bring problems. Wherever there's a mouth, there's a problem waiting to happen. Right? right? And so quit, this whole big or small, you know, small group, big group, a small group by itself is not a church. A big group by itself is, doesn't make that a church. It's, it's, they were devoted to all these behaviors. They, they gave. They, they baptized. They, 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 were, they, they took communion together. So just deciding a Bible and some people to or, you know, using the two or more gathered in my name, that's a, that's a, that's a passage about discipline, putting somebody out of the church, not about me and a couple of my buddies going hunting is a church. Yeah, Jesus can't hear you when you're by yourself. You got to have at least two or three. Right. Yeah. I, I don't understand this whole version of America coming up with our own version of church. We were given, Jesus said, go make disciples. He didn't mean go do it any way you want. He said, you just saw me do it. Now go do it. When Jesus started a church, he didn't mean go figure out what you like. And, you know, we got the music people over at that church and the word people over at that church. It was a, one of the, the most amazing things about the people of God is that they recognize the gifts of others and they don't isolate into little subgroups based on their preferences. We come together as a body of believers, Christ first. We make disciples. It's a complete church where there's heads and eyes and toes and noses and butts. And we come together and we grow and we, we are the church. And so I don't really understand a lot of And again, I didn't come from the church model. I was an atheist who went, I don't like the church, what it is, the way I see it. So what is Jesus's method? I don't really care what happened at the Great Schism or the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Trent or the Reformation movement. What did Jesus do and follow his methods? And wow, it actually works because he knows what he's doing. And so I don't really understand the whole discussion, big, small. If you never mind, I'm done. Yeah, I, actually, I, I, can I just? Yeah, I want to. I want to draw in Harry here. So. Let, let me summarize what you're saying because it can come across that you're saying something contrary to what we're saying. Okay, I am. Okay. <laughs> I think I think oh, that's really? part of what it means to be Jim. <laughs> in, in part, I am, and I'm not trying to be nuanced and try to make everybody play nice together. Yeah. Can I can I real quick jump in because I don't think it's a question about how how large or how small a church is. I think. Um, it seems to me like what you're saying is you retract you you um, you reacted to the attractional model even before you became a follower of Christ and said that that's not the model. Now you may call it something different. So again, I, I don't think just because a church is attractional does not mean a church will be attractive. I mean, a church may not be attractive at all. I'd say that most of the churches in the United States are leaning into the attractional model, whether they're good at it or not, is a whole other thing. And some churches yeah. are really good at it. So now, motive is what you're talking about. Yeah, it may, it may be motive. Well, it's, it's the model. It's, you know, so, we, so we see one time in, in all of Scripture where Jesus says the words, come and see, and it's to, it's to Nathaniel, right? So he says, come and see, and then we built a whole church model on coming and seeing when Jesus was training his disciples for a lifetime of going and being. And we said, no, we're going to make church about the come and see thing, right? So that, that to me is the attractional model. Yeah, it is a motive. So it's, it's a model built on come and see what we do so well here 
We're going to put on a great show on Sundays. And, and I don't think, I think we should do. In fact, I think it's, I, mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's bad for me to go that far. It can be a bad thing when we don't do the best we can on a Sunday morning. I'll say that. Now, one church's best on a Sunday morning is going to look different than another church's best on a Sunday morning. There's no doubt. But if we come together and the whole thing's just sloppy, I don't think that's honoring God. I don't think it is. But again, I think the majority of the churches in the United States, small or large, have dedicated to something, dedicated themselves to something where they're saying, come and see what happens here, as opposed to this is where you come. Yeah, so what are they coming and, and see? And yeah, they're coming and seeing good or bad preaching. They're coming or seeing good, good or bad worship. They're coming, you know, d- depending on what we call good or bad. Again, that you could put qualifiers on it, but they're coming and seeing what we're doing on stage. Yeah. And, and, and then that's supposed to that, now that's, make that's them not into what Christians. I'm talking about. I'm talking about when Jesus said, come and see to Nathaniel, he was saying, they asked him, you know, where are you going, Lord? He said, come and see, come and do life with me. Right. Exactly. And I want Sunday morning to be a a taste of something that if they'll come in, they'll find more and more and more of it. They're going to find love and grace and truth and, and relationship. So the purpose of anything we do, you know, from our sports programs to whatever, we'll meet you where you're at so that you see we're something different. And then you come back to the next step. Chess isn't something that happens in one move. Ultimately, everything leads to, to discipleship in small groups where you learn to love God and learn to love others. Any part of it that doesn't lead to the next step, to the, to the full embodiment of that, is, is a mistake. But, but my point being is, we get all, you know, I got people asking me about small groups and house churches. And, you know, I get to go all around the world, as does Harry and probably all of you. Every church where it's illegal, to meet in groups, they, 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 they morph and they move and they do what they need to do. As soon as it becomes legal, they all want to meet together. They all want to get together and, and praise God together. They want to, they want to be a, they want to make a statement, whether it's China or Africa. One of the things that I think is a little bit different about Africa is there is this community based thing that holds them together. Whereas you tell Americans they don't have to be together, they'll all come up with their own little thing and take off. And then it'll be 50, it's like a shotgun, 50 different versions of church out there, all picking and choosing what they want off the internet so they can create their own little, uh, there's no sense of doing things together. And then we reinforce that, whereas in Africa and many of the other places, there is a sense of community they're longing for versus an independence uh, in America where we all want to separate because it's all about me and you'll, you'll infringe on my meanness, right? It's, it's a different world. And, and I, that's why the, the house church movement in America just drives me absolutely okay. insane. Okay. Um, so will you clarify for me, when we describe an attractional church with disciple-making movement principles, you said you don't agree with the... Attra- what is it that you don't agree with? I, I it, again, I get a little fired up. So, hey, by, by the way, everybody, Jim and I are very close friends, uh, <laughs> and we like to argue because it helps us both. Yeah. Um, when somebody talks about the, the way you guys were talking about the attractional model, right? It sounds like you're saying the big church in a town. What do you mean by that? We're just saying 
that we invite people to come to a, a weekend gathering of God's people that's traditionally understood as a church gathering. Okay, then call it a church gathering, not the attractional model, because that's kind of a dirty word. Well, it can be a dirty Okay, how word. many of you, when you think about the attractional model, you, you automatically go, I don't like that? Raise your hand. It's a dirty pretty, word. Pretty much, pretty much, pretty much everybody under 40 thinks dirty words. Right. So everybody when you talk about a attractional okay model, I'm already like, I don't want anything to do with that. Okay. I don't want anything to do with that. But if you mean a big church, I'm not against a big church because if you're, if you're really serving We're God. We're actually talking about a weekend gathering at a location, typically in a building, to not abandon that as a place where right, you cause, can. Because Shadonke, okay, I've gotten to be blessed to talk with him. We make it sound like we pass out the Bible and everybody goes and does their own thing. No, they have systems of coaching, of leadership, of gatherings. We're emphasizing one thing, but when you talk to Shadonke, there's a that guy is a strategic and brilliant of a man yeah. who has had to deal with these people getting saved and then the cluster that that creates. And he's got systems and leadership, and they gather together. It's not my church is over there, and I don't go to the big church. Yeah. It's both and. But in America, if we emphasize something, people go, oh, let's just start out hanging out Bibles, and everybody goes and does their own thing and picks and chooses whatever they want. That's not what, we're ta- that's not what he's talking about. Okay, so what I'm saying is, I, when, you, when you use the word attractional, I'm already, I'm like, I don't like it. When you use the word large, people have been taught to believe it's big if it's organized it's bad god is a god of order it's yeah. organized yeah. with eldership and doctrine and and you know it, so why do we talk about that like it's a bad thing well if it's the only thing it's a problem but it was never supposed to be yeah. harry you've been so polite uh, <laughs> Now, uh, by the way, I did, I did finally get our definition of a church. <laughs> I had to text Gene to get it because I couldn't get on the WhatsApp. But will you jump in and comment on this uh, whole uh, thing, especially the definition of a church? Actually, before you uh, go, I just want to, uh, here's a definition that a group of us worked on. And I, I don't think it's finalized, but at least it's a placeholder, a spiritual family growing in surrendered obedience to all the teachings of Jesus Christ, who gather together regularly under biblically recognized leadership for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples with a great commandment heart of loving God and loving people. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to like in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what is the, uh, the essence of church, as we've gone into the scripture, uh, you could fit it all on a three by five card. In the configuration of it, whether it's small or big or has this element or that element, I think is not the center of the discussion. I think the center of the discussion is, is it accomplishing the purpose of God for the gathering of his people? Is it producing the expansion of the kingdom? Is it increasing the glory of God? Is it reproducible? These are more strategy questions. They're not configuration questions. So the idea is, in your context, and everybody's context is different, and I've said before, there's no cookie cutter. No one size fits all. So in the context, how do we get to the goal? 
And whatever we have, we should constantly evaluate to say, is what we really want coming out the other side of this process? If it is, that's great. Let's accelerate it and reproduce it. If it's not, let's see what we have to do to tweak it and adjust it so it can be more of what God wants it to be. As uh, you're listening to Jim, in fact, go ahead. Well, that makes it sound like if it works, it must be true. And I don't believe that. Well, in the, the sense of if it works, the presupposition is, does it reflect what, what God wants it to be? Right. And what, what I, what it, there is a difference between evangelism, and but this is true. The greatest way to evangelize people is to unleash people to take responsibility in every sphere of their life to mm -hmm. share Christ. But the discipleship process isn't something that happens in four months. It doesn't happen in a very short period of time. It takes life on life, structure, stable relationships. It, it isn't something where we just... It, what happens is discipleship is a process of growth that takes time. And immature people, if they haven't been pressed in, you know, have leadership and coaching and doing those things, they produce... You know, there's a slight adaptation to to what we're trying to copy, and it becomes less and less of what it intended to be, which is why the systems and the coaching and the process has to take. So if it's just getting people fired up and then take somebody the next step, the Bible by itself without mature people doesn't actually make disciples, or Jesus would have said, just copy the Bible and start passing it out. There is a discipleship process that, it, that takes a spiritual parent that walks people through a process to maturity. Should they go share their faith? Absolutely. But are they capable of being a spiritual parent four months after they just they went out? And, 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 and if we just keep doing that, it gets less and less mature as time goes by, in my estimation. Well, I think, though, if you negate the work of the Holy Spirit, that's, gonna, that's definitely going to happen. I, the way that I've seen it, too, is I've seen those who, without maybe a, an intentionality in the, in the spiritual father-mother, um, there's been a, a definite lack of that. But I have seen the Holy Spirit fill in uh, in the lack of that. And I'm not saying that's a recipe, nor do I want to ever do that. Yeah, you're talking about, does God step in? Sure, amen. Like, if somebody gets saved on an on a island... right. They don't have any people. Will God step in and do a miracle? Right. right. But what's the normative pattern? Right. It's to go and make disciples, not just make converts. Absolutely. And that takes people. Absolutely. It's God's people, God's word, God's spirit. And God primarily speaks through the word. That's why discipleship without the word, you, how do you even know what voice you're hearing? Right. 100%. Test the spirits. Did you have something you were going to? No, I was just uh, in, uh, encouraging Harry if he wanted to add anything. Um, a, a question. You know, the, uh, the hybrid model that you're um, proposing, I'm going to go back to Paul and ask another dimension of the why. Appreciate the why that you gave. What is the fundamental problem you're trying to address with the proposition you're making? Yeah, I think the, the fundamental problem is that is coming back to what Bobby said earlier um, in, the, in the National Study on Disciple Making Churches in the United States is that only 5% of all the churches in the United States are actually creating disciples who reproduce disciples. I mean, that's, that's a huge issue. So we're not even talking about the fact that we have a population of what over 300 million people 
that are struggling. We're talking about the fact that 95% of our churches are struggling in living out the mission of Jesus because we have set something else as the mission of the church. So we said, here's the mission of the church, and we've neglected the mission of Jesus. So we have a, a counterfeit mission, in a sense. So the mission of the church for 95% of the churches in the United States seems to be, unless they're dedicating themselves faithfully to disciple-making, maybe they are, and they're just really struggling at it. So God bless them if that's happening. But it seems to be, again, let's just get people here, do something here, and hope that's sufficient for what they're going to go do in their life. So again, we're, we're to that place again where I'm the basketball coach and I'm standing up on stage and my basketball players are sitting, you know, seated on the floor and I'm telling these 12 to 15 guys, here's what basketball looks like. I'll see you at the game. Yep. Well, even worse, they're saying, come and watch me play. Right. You have no, you're not supposed to play. You're a spectator. You, and you watch me play and come back next week and I'll play another game. So, so if I could address maybe Jim's tension a little bit with the fact that we've called this the attractional church, there are other ways of describing this as well. We can talk about the prevailing church, so it's the prevalent church in the United States, or it's the legacy church, it's the legacy that many of us have been gifted, and now we're trying to take that group of people and shift them from whatever they've decided the mission of the church is to the mission of Jesus for his church. That is a so, great segue, because I, I want to ask, and I want to touch on this, because I was one of those, right? I, I inherited, if you will, a legacy church that was focused on making ministries and programs, right? The more ministries you had, the more successful you were deemed. How do we make that transition and, and what does it look like? Because for, for church planners in the house, you've got a much easier, uh, it's easier because you're, you're from the jump, starting it the way, you know, with the vision of discipleship in the DNA, if you're trying to literally change the DNA down to the chromosomal level, right? How do you make that shift? What, you know, what part of the elephant do you eat first, right? This has become, you know, in, in my life, uh, a real challenge. So what do you guys see as kind of that most important, that transition? How does that work? Well, uh, Jim, why don't you jump in? So we wrote the book Disciple right. Shift to describe, right. you know, how to make that shift. You know, I've had the pleasure of leading a church to make the shift and helping some others. But Jim, why don't you jump in because well, I, I think this is something you work on a lot. I think, again, I would ask some questions. Sure. Okay, so ministries. Um, is it wrong to have programs? Let's talk no, about programs. Not at all. Um, now, it, it, for instance, we started a little kids wrestling program because several of our guys got saved and were college wrestlers and they really loved sports, right? Mm -hmm. So you're meeting, you're taking a passion that somebody has and, and a field that they understand and you're, you're moving it to this place where those who have like passions and, uh, can meet with a community of people that have a, a perception of their need is, my kid needs to be a wrestler or an athlete. Right. We meet them where they're at the goal is that through that, that program, people are going to find out what they really need is Jesus, and they need to be disciples of Jesus. Right. So whatever the ministry or program is, does it actually lead to discipleship, or does it kind of become this um, distraction in their life? Now, yeah. it will usually start as a distraction, uh, and then we move it forward. And, and, and if the guy's leading the program are not actually leading the next step. 
and saying, here's what I'm doing. Like, for instance, if, if the guy's leading the program, I, I had to go to one of my guys who, who was, uh, got too busy, was no longer in a small group, and he wasn't coming to church as often. I had to say, we're about to drop your program. Because people, are, as you go, people are, if you're not taking the next step and living in that next step, they won't either. And so it starts with, before you're thinking about whatever changes you're making out there in your church, asking this question, are you personally a disciple maker? If you are not as the senior pastor, then don't ask it. One of the verses that hit me years ago was where Jesus said that the Pharisees, woe to the Pharisees, for they tie burdens on people's backs that they will not lift a finger to help carry. If you think your people should be disciple makers and you're not a disciple maker, as the head goes, the body follows. If you have staff that all they do is they, don't, they get to opt out of personal disciple making because they lead a disciple making ministry. It's over from the get go. Living your life as a disciple maker, giving people something they can see you do that they can do. And you're living that out. And all they they all have a job. And then you're asking them to come in and serve and be a part of it. You have a job. There's a difference between your job and your personal ministry, disciple-making ministry. That's the first bite to make. Because when you start doing that, it changes the way you preach. Because you're not, rather than think, you don't even know what your people are getting from your messages until you sit there and it's a very humbling experience. When they go, yeah, this is what I got, and it was nothing like what you said or thought you said. It changes the way you preach. It changes what you expect rather than shooting over their head or answering questions you think they have. Now it changes everything. As you start to do that and you celebrate that and you talk about not something you did when you were in Bible college, it's something you're doing right now and times when people had to encourage you or hold you accountable. As as you start celebrating that in your own life and in your staff's life, it changes the trajectory of everybody in the church. I'd say maybe, um, so I, I 100% agree with what, what Jim has said in that um, we have to set the example. Uh, there's, a, there's a book by a guy named Will Mancini called Future Church where he actually talks about some of what we're talking about on a very theoretical level. But the inspiration that he leaves at the end of that is if you're, if you're at a church where this isn't happening, go be the one that does it. doesn't matter what role you play. But for those of us who fill the role of, of pastor or leader communicator within, within our church, um, you know, I think, one, many of our churches don't know that being a disciple of Jesus is the goal. I mean, that's actually where we started. What was wild was, you know, we, we, we arrived at this place where we looked around and we said, we, we have a whole bunch of church members, but not a lot of disciples of Jesus. So let's first talk to them about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And then incrementally, actually, God brought to us as a leadership, then the next understanding that now we're called to go be disciple makers. Okay, so we came back to the church and said, hey, Remember when we told you we were called to be disciples of Jesus, we're actually called to go and be disciple makers as well. I mean, that, that was how slow the revelation came for us. And then the next piece, as, as Bobby said as well, the, the next bit of that too was, oh, wait a minute, we're actually called to be makers of disciple makers as well. So, so this kind of, I think, progressive almost revelation or understanding of what the mission of God was and what it was calling us to go do and be. And so we very slowly walked our people through I think a correction of the understanding of the expectation of what it means to be somebody who just is part of a Sunday morning gathering to say, no, your call in Jesus goes much deeper than attending this church. And then I think beyond that too, um, you know, so as I, as I talk with other church leaders, 
Um, one of the first things that I tell them now that they are starting to understand this, maybe they've started to communicate with their church members that there's a different expectation is that you actually have to build urgency. So you can look at, again, this, um, th- this understanding, and this, this goes with, um, with John Cotter's steps of leading organizational change. But if you look at uh, the statistic that 95% of all the churches in our nation are not making disciples, I mean, we're just, we're just not doing that. That can move you to either being incredibly discouraged or maybe if you have no heart, it moves you to a place where you embrace complacency or apathy, or it can move you to a place where you embrace urgency. And you say, then something has to change. And then you start talking to your people about what needs to change and why it needs to change and the fact that things can't stay the way they are. And if you're feeling that and you're not sharing that, well, that, there's a real disconnect in that, I think. And so for many of us who are then in a prevailing or legacy or attractional, whatever, whatever label you want to put on that, that is not a context where we're not making disciples. We've got to explain to our people that discipleship is the goal. Disciple making is the goal. Making more disciple makers is the goal. And the mission is now. It's urgent. It's not tomorrow. It's now. It starts right now. And so I think, I think that's where we start in communicating and leading is we're casting the vision for something different than what we've been doing, and we're describing why what we've been doing is not enough. And maybe as, as Harry's done, we're painting some of the barriers that, they're, that are going to be in our way. We're slowly, methodically leading our people through this. As I'm engaging with, with folks that I, I'm coaching, one of the things I'm saying to them is it took us six years as a legacy church to start to make this shift. And I think even with somebody coaching you who's gone before, it's going to take you at least two or three years. This is not going to happen overnight. And if you think it is, you're going to become incredibly discouraged. So let me tell you, it's going to take time, but keep pushing. And one of our elders came to me after we'd been praying for renewal and revival for some time. We've been praying almost three years at that point. And he said, are you discouraged about the fact that we had not seen renewal, revival, and awakening yet? And just the day before, I'd had a conversation with one of my small group members. For some reason, thought they needed to tell me of the story of Elijah praying for three and a half years before it rained. And in that moment, it clicked. This takes time. So let me just add what you just said. You have the Holy Spirit, right? You have God's word. And it takes time to change. So just handing out a Bible and asking them to pray. It takes time to change for a brand new believer too. Especially when the pathways of their life in every sphere of their life, their home. Discipleship is just doctrine. It's what kind of a father are you? What, most people are what they were handed, or they, they, they swing the pendulum away from what they were handed. So they think discipleship is what happens in church, maybe their work sphere, but what about their home sphere when they, they're a woman who doesn't submit to her husband because she was abused or never saw it? Discipleship doesn't happen overnight, which is why doing life with people so that you can talk about all the aspects of your life, not just what behavior you put on at church on Sunday morning, is a process that goes far beyond just, just teaching. And, if, if, and so we're like, well, okay, the Holy Spirit's going to do it over there, but the same Holy Spirit can help us lead, and that doesn't happen automatically. We're in a journey of relational process in every part of this. Amen. Amen. Anything either one of you want to add? Um, I I would say there's not time today, but there's a series of questions I think it would be good for you to work on as you talk about refining a hybrid model. And when I asked you the follow-up on why, what I was listening for is so we don't have to blow up what we have. 
And I think that's one of the big compelling whys when you're, you're talking to an audience, people that have churches that exist. Then, then I would ask questions like, do you perceive that this is going to create stratas within the church? Meaning, some people want to come along, some people want to dabble, and some people want all in. If so, how do you manage the stratas? Right. Then I would ask, what do you think is the big win? I would ask then, what do you think is the big risk? What are you going to have to protect against? Then I would ask, how do you make sure that it can be reproducible once it's past the, um, the original foundation? And if so, is it reproducible in the sense that it would be autonomous or it would be connected? What are the trade-offs in that? Anyway, there's a series of questions I would ask for those who want to refine something because the folks that need to apply something are going to have all kinds of crossroads they have to face. And the more you ask those kinds of questions, the more you can distill. In this situation, there's some forks in the road. Whichever one you choose, choose for a why that gets you to the ultimate outcome. Let me just close by saying this for me. Because we care so much about discipleship in small groups, we talk about what you can't do in church service a lot. This time I'm actually supporting a church service. I'm swinging because a lot of people go, well, then there's no purpose for church service on the weekends because you say it all happens in small group. No, there is. I'm just talking against the, the attractional model alone, right? But there's three, we call them the three C's in our church. This is what we plan to do on weekends. Number one, challenge with the word of God. Number two, connect people to the next step, to relationships where they go further. Right? Number three, celebrate what we value. Three C's on the weekends. Connect, challenge, celebrate. That's what, so connect them to the next step, challenge them to follow with, with the word, and then celebrate baptisms. Not just who got baptized, but who won them to the Lord. And it's usually a life group leader, a, a dad, a friend. Why steal from them the, the blessing of them getting to be a part of seeing somebody they witness to get baptized? They get to do it. We celebrate people who are being disciple makers, telling the stories. Those three C's are really key to what you do on the weekends. Amen. I tell you what, uh, our time is, is up, and uh, it's been great to have each of you here. We want to invite you to the National Disciple Making Forum in Nashville. Uh, Jim will be there. Dan will be there. Uh, uh, hopefully, I haven't had a chance. Uh, Paul and Harry will be there. And uh, we're just trying to facilitate these conversations because we think that the mission of disciple making is the most important conversation for the North American church right now. So thank you all for being with us. And we hope that you have a great day. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed that break from the forum track sessions so that you could hear what we shared at the Exponential Conference earlier this year. We are about to jump right back in those track sessions from the forum last year. And up next is going to be Small Circle. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to hit subscribe so that you know when I release the next episode. And I also have a link in the show notes where you can buy that combo ticket to both the National Disciple Making Forum and the Renew Gathering. It would be awesome to see you at both events. All right, everybody, I'll catch you on the next episode. Have a great day.